Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 9, 31 to 43. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. Before you uh, sit down, I wanted to encourage you guys. As you guys know, we are going through the book of of Acts. And uh, we have, uh, I'm excited to bring you Jonathan, who's going to be presenting the word, uh, one of our leaders. Uh, As you know, he is our executive director for our Community Development Corporation. And um, I'm just excited to be able to pray for my brother and uh, allow him to just be used by Jesus as he uh, presents the scriptures, okay? So let's pray for him together as a family, and let's just get excited about learning about Jesus, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, Jonathan and his leadership and his love and his friendship. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, with your word, um, um, go forth to the people. We ask, Lord Jesus, we know that it's not our intellect, it's not our competence, that we can understand the Holy One. But it's your revelation. It's your grace. And so we pray that you will pour that grace out upon us. You reveal yourself to us. And you will give us a heart to respond to you in worship. And that you will use your son. Holy Spirit, fill him. Use his words. Be exalted. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Macav. It is always an honor to be in front of you guys. And I, I haven't told Eric this yet, but I appreciate him even taking the time to put his reputation on the line by allowing me to be up here and, and endorsing me. Um, for those of you guys who don't know me, like Eric said, my name is Jonathan Demers. I'm a member here at MacGav, um, and I am privileged and honored to be able to share with you guys today about the hope of Christ and how it's expressed in Acts chapter 9, verses 31 to 43. Um, let me just kind of cover a couple of ground rules as we get started. You see Pastor Leon is passing out extra Bibles If you need a copy, uh, you're more than welcome to ask for one. We have plenty, and uh, we will be going through a lot of scripture today, most of which will be on the screen, but I definitely encourage you to be in the Word yourself and um, to be, yeah, in its riches. Um, And then also, I go through quite a bit of content, um, quite a bit of research, and I go at a pretty good clip. And so in this body, it is very common and very appropriate for you to be able to ask questions, um, especially if you think something's not clear or something is just not, not very understood on your part. Um, I will say this, though. If it's a personal question that has to do with you or something that you and I could talk about after service, please save that question for afterwards. Um, but I, I do want to encourage you as a body, if you have a general question that would benefit all of us, um, please, please ask that question during service. It's totally appropriate. 
Okay? So with that, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to jump right in. Bow your heads with me. Father God, uh, we are just so privileged and pleased and honored to be a part of the service. We're so thankful um, that we have the opportunity to be here, to learn, to study, to be in the Word. God, would you teach us what it looks like to be in the Word? Would you teach us what it looks like to be students of the Word? Would you not allow this just to be another talk? Uh, to be some discussion that we have, or just another Sunday that we're at church, Lord. But would the richness of the service that we've already experienced, would it continue even now into the message, God? Would you give us the energy and the focus and the urgency and the vigilance to be, to be students of the word today, God? Uh, may you teach us not to underestimate the power of your scripture, the power of the authors that you used to write it. Um, and would you allow message like the one today, God, prayerfully the truth that you would speak through me, a, a broken vessel, God, would you allow that to be something that encourages us in truth um, and leads us to be more and more like your son, Jesus. Amen. So we are just going to jump right into the message today. We've got a lot to cover, um, and this message is kind of a shift away from some of the things that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Prior to this point, we've really been focusing on Paul, um, but we're going to be transitioning into Peter's ministry. And we're going to be looking at, I think, a really powerful theme that comes out of this passage that Luke is intentionally trying to draw our attention to. A theme that I think will encourage us, and a theme that I think will speak to the work that we do here even as a local church in this community. Um, And so my message is going to be broken down into four different parts. We're going to be talking first about the persecution, second about the parallel, third about the power, and fourth about the purpose. So let's go ahead and begin right away with the first section, the persecution. Um, And just as a reminder, again, for those of us who haven't been here for the full series or for those of us that need a refresher, let's remind ourselves what's happened up to this point in the book of Acts. We've seen at the beginning of the book the Holy Spirit empower the first early church of believers by validating that Jesus had risen from the dead and by giving the early church the ability to do miraculous things, things that no one had ever seen before, to prove that God was at work and that Jesus was at work through the body of Christ. But that wasn't received well by everyone. In fact, the religious establishment challenged the church, challenged them on their grounds, challenged them on their belief, and that challenge quickly turned violent. And we saw that happen with Stephen, who was the first of many Christians to die during a period of persecution by uh, the Jewish authorities. From Stephen's death, we see a man named Saul enter the scene, a man who is a devout believer and follower of God, but uh, misunderstands and begins to actually persecute the church uh, egregiously. He drives them from Jerusalem, splitting families apart, jailing many, killing some. This man Saul, though, as he scatters the church, is actually met by Jesus on the road to Damascus in an incredible moment. And in that moment, Saul becomes Paul. Saul becomes a messenger, a missionary, rather than the murderer that he had been all throughout the book. So that is what's been going on up to this point. And the church is kind of beginning to enter into a a state of peace, but still dealing with this, this reality of persecution that otherwise they had never encountered before. And that's where we reach verse 31. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. The passage says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So I want to make a couple of quick observations about this verse right here. First, notice that the passage says the church, which would be easy to gloss over. But remember what we just discussed. 
the church, which had at one time been concentrated in Jerusalem, had now been scattered all across Judea and Samaria. This is the first time that we have different churches in different geographic areas. But look at how the passage refers to them. Unified. The church. The way we talk about the global church now. What a powerful statement, considering all the persecution, all the doubt that must have come up. Luke can sit here confidently describing the church as the church, unified despite their geographic distance. Notice, too, that he describes the church as walking in the fear of the Lord. Also, an astounding statement, considering the context. The church has been persecuted now for a significant amount of time. And the whole point of persecution is to create fear, right? Fear in the authorities, fear in power, fear in violence. And yet, who does the church fear right now? The church fears only God. What a powerful statement. Despite all the persecution, all the attempts to get the church to fear others, right now the church is fearing God. And then notice, too, that Luke describes the church as walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And this may remind you of the way that Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in John 15 and John 16. That he would send a comforter, someone to guide the Christians in all truth. Someone who would support them in difficult times like these. And how cool is it to see Luke use the same language of comfort to describe the way that the Holy Spirit is working in and through the church in the midst of great trials and persecution to teach them to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit and the comfort of the Holy Spirit in great difficult times. Now that's a pretty compelling picture of the church, a pretty transformational one, one that I would venture to say we all desire for our local body and for the global church. And so I think it's worth asking ourselves and pausing here for a minute, how is it that the church was able to come out of its first persecution ever, so much opposition, and yet emerge with this kind of steadfastness? Um, And so to answer that question, I want to just briefly dive into the idea of persecution and two specific aspects of persecution. First, persecution and identity, and second, persecution and joy. So first, let's go into persecution and identity. Look at how Jesus describes persecution and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Think about that. Jesus is actually calling us to rejoice in persecution. Why? Because we're suffering falsely on his account. Look at how Paul describes the idea of persecution in 1 Timothy 3. Paul, speaking to one of his disciples, no longer Saul the murderer, but now Paul the missionary, says to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. So what, what is going on here? What is scripture trying to teach us about persecution? It seems to be the case that part of the DNA of being a Christian, part of the very character itself of following Christ, is to be persecuted. Right? And we see this not just in these two passages, but throughout the whole narrative of scripture. Men and women of God standing for God And suffering as a result. Think of Abel, Moses, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Peter, Paul, Stephen, the early church during the midst of their Roman persecution. Jesus himself, right? All of these men suffered for the name of God. It's part of what it means to follow Christ is to encounter this persecution. Ultimately, I want to suggest that Jesus is teaching us that persecution is a clear 
and, and a marker to identify those who are celebrating and actively advancing the kingdom of God. Hopefully that's encouraging to you guys. <laughs> For those of you who claim the name of Christ, that may not sound extremely encouraging, right? I don't think we're excited about stepping into something like that. And for a lot of us, we may not even necessarily understand how persecution looks in our context, which I'll speak to in just a moment. But I will, yeah, let me answer this question first. Go ahead, Sandra. Um, I'm, that's, that's me. <laughs> I just wanted to have the words on the screen. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to have the words on the screen so you guys could see it. That's good. Um, so persecution as identity, right? So this is a truth. We see this in Scripture. But now, how do we respond to it? And I would venture to say that Scripture says we should respond to persecution with joy. Okay, look at James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brother, says the brother of Jesus, one of the leaders of the early church, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it all joy. When we as believers are facing persecution, we're supposed to be happy about it? We are. We're called to. In fact, we're called to model the character of Christ, who we know from Hebrews 11, as we read in that passage, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, rather, that for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God. He is our model for persecution. He is who we are to follow in difficult times like these. And we've already seen the church do this in Acts chapter 5. After they've encountered a significant amount of pushback, and, and rejection from their own Jewish families. Look at how the church responds. And when the Pharisees, in this case, in the passage, had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So this is Peter and John, after preaching a powerful message, are beaten and told that they need to go. And then Peter and John left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. What a perspective, family, to be able to encounter persecution and not be so caught up in what persecution is supposed to do to you, to create fear, to create uh, depression and sadness, but to count it worthy, something that we are worthy, excited to experience so that we can identify ourselves with Christ. Now, this is a quote that has been uh, used a number of different times in the series, but I'm putting it up here intentionally, okay? Persecution is never the enemy of the church. Robert Coleman. I'll say it again. Persecution is never the enemy of the church. Look at how Scripture is teaching persecution for us, family. Look at how the early church responds to it in Acts. We should not shrink back from persecution, but we ought to celebrate it in a godly way. And, and the reason I'm emphasizing this so much, family, is because I think in our context, we encounter a kind of persecution that is extremely difficult, and we've, many of us have seen, and that's spiritual warfare. For many of us who have been here for a long time, we've seen it and we've experienced it. And if you haven't yet at MAC, you will soon, either in your own life or in the life of people that you're close to. Spiritual warfare might look like a debilitating life experience. It might be unforeseen or resurfacing doubt in your life. It might be physical suffering, family trauma or drama, unhealthy thinking, tempting circumstances, isolation from a caring community, greed, selfishness, or the loss of health. Ultimately, the enemy, Satan, is going to use whatever he can to set up obstacles in our way to be single-mindedly focused on advancing God's kingdom. And I'm convinced, family, that as a church, 
We are doing our best to be faithful to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ in this neighborhood. And that means, if we're taking scripture seriously, that we should anticipate persecution in our lives, particularly in the form of spiritual warfare. We need to be ready for that. And we've, many of us have seen it already. Look at how Paul talks about this idea of spiritual warfare in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to to demolish strongholds. Now, key in on verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let us not shrink back in fear when we are faced with persecution and when we encounter these difficult circumstances. No, family, let us instead embrace and celebrate and count the cost of following Jesus so that when our homes are broken into, when our capacities are drained, when our jobs become overwhelming, our sin wanes burdensome, our relationships grow fragile, when we're just exhausted, let us rally together as the body of Christ. Let us embrace what he has given to us and let us, in the path of Jesus, count it joy. Look at how things end up, family. We we can have joy because we know how things ultimately end and we see this in Revelation 12. The accuser of our brothers and sisters, our enemy, who accuses them before our God day and night, he has been hurled down. They triumph over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. May that be true for us. May that be true for us. (laughs) Let's continue. So that's the persecution, right? That's the context. That's what we're stepping out of as we step into Peter's ministry. That state of unity, fearing the Lord, walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's the state of the church, even as they emerge out of persecution. So now we want to step into the main part of the passage, and I want to ask Miss Carolyn Davis to read the first several verses of this section. It's going to be Acts 9, 32 to 35. Miss Carolyn, go ahead. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydia. There he found a man named Ananias. They had been for eight years who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he Hmm. rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Amen. So as we look at this passage, I want to make a couple of key observations as we continue on. First, look at Acts 9, 32 to 35, and look at some of the key things that happened here, right? We see a man who's paralyzed, who has been paralyzed for some time, and he's commanded by Peter in this case to rise. And Jesus, or Peter doesn't do so out of his own authority. He does so from the authority of Jesus, claiming Jesus' name. Immediately the man rises, and all the people who witness this and hear of it are amazed. So I want to ask you guys, as you, as you see those markers, does this incident remind you of anything that you've heard of before, particularly perhaps in the Gospels? Does this incident sound familiar? If you know, raise your hand and offer it up. Yeah. Lazarus? It, it is similar to Lazarus. I'm thinking of something different because while this man was paralyzed, Lazarus was actually dead. Um, but that's, that's good. There's definitely some similarity. What's another one? Yeah, Caleb. 
Definitely, right? So definitely parallels the situation where uh, Peter heals the man earlier in Acts. Is that what you're referring to? But I'm thinking of one in the Gospels. Is there another one? Yeah, Mike. Yes, exactly. So this, this parallels extremely closely the story from Luke chapter 5, verse 17 to 26, where another paralyzed man is commanded to rise by the authority of Jesus, right? Jesus actually rises him to prove that he's God. It's, the man rises immediately, and all that are around Jesus are amazed. Okay, so we see a really close parallel between these passages. And it's important to note, too, remember, Acts and Luke are one book that have been split up since. And so Luke is intentionally using language in Acts to mirror language that's used in Luke. And, by the way, is also used in Matthew and in Mark, which are two other synoptic gospels that largely tell the same story. Coincidence? I would say not. Okay, let's go ahead and read the next part of the passage, uh, which I'm going to ask Demetrius to go ahead and read Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 36 to 43. All right. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they watched her, they lay her in the upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tainer. Praise God. Thank you, Demetrius. What a story, right? Peter, emerging and entering into a town he's never been in before, clears the room, raises a young woman to life. What a powerful story. And let's note some key observations here, too, just like we did in the last passage. There's a woman who tragically dies, and in the midst of her sickness and ultimately her death, there's a search done for a healer, someone to come and to save her. Ultimately, that healer does show up, Peter, but she's dead. And yet, even while surrounded by family, Peter empties the room, kneels by her bed, takes her hand, and says, rise. And she does. And the whole town is amazed and is turned to the Lord. Again, I want to ask you guys as family, does this parallel anything that you've heard before? Is there a passage that comes to mind when you see this? Yeah, Sam. The healing of Jairus' daughter. daughter. That's exactly right. Look at some of the key markers from Luke 8, verse 40 to 42 and 49 to 56. There's a young woman who tragically died, and Jairus makes a desperate search for someone to come and heal her. And he knows exactly who to look for, for Jesus. Jesus reaches her, but not in time, and she dies, and he finds her surrounded by family. Jesus intentionally empties the room of everyone except a few apostles, kneels by her bed, takes her by the hand, and says, rise. And she does, from the dead. And everyone that's there is amazed. And the same story is told in Matthew, and the same story is told in Mark. So what's going on here? Again, I don't think that this is coincidental. I don't think Luke is intentionally using the same language that he used just prior in the gospel in two different passages for two different parallels. So we need to ask ourselves, with all of this parallelism that's going on here, what is Luke trying to teach us? In Scripture, when parallel happens, whether it's in the Psalms or the New Testament, it's used to display importance and to emphasize. 
And so we need to figure out what's important and what's being emphasized here. And I'd propose to you that the word that's being emphasized, the one thing that's in common in all of these stories is the Greek word anistomy, which in English defined means to cause to rise or to raise up from the dead. In fact, it is the exact same word that is used to describe Jesus' resurrection. Okay? That is the focus of this passage. Luke has intentionally set up, creatively and strategically, two stories to parallel, two gospel stories that all draw our eyes and our hearts to this idea of resurrection. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why is Luke, as intelligent as he is as a doctor, as someone who's incredibly gifted and who I confess often underestimate as a biblical author, why is he drawing our attention to this theme? I think, given the passage, we need to give him the time of day to step into this idea of resurrection, study it, survey it, and try and figure out why it is that Luke has dropped this parallel, this focus, in the middle of Acts. And so that's what we're going to do. In the third section of our sermon now, the power, I want to really take a hard look at this idea of the resurrection, which appears to be the focus of the parallel that Luke is using here. So let's dive into Scripture to see what Scripture has to say on this subject. Um, And let's see why he's emphasizing it in the way that he is. And so to do that, I want to break it down four ways when we study resurrection. We're going to look at the definition of resurrection. We're going to look at dimensions of resurrection. We're going to look at the demand for resurrection. And we're going to look at displays of resurrection in real life, like how it actually looks played out. So first, let's start with the definition of resurrection. And I would define it this way. The reign of Jesus evidenced in the miraculous regeneration of those who were once dead. I'll say that again. The reign of Jesus evidenced in the miraculous regeneration of those who were once dead. And in case you don't think that this is a really important concept, I'm sure by the end of this you will. But look at how Paul talks about resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul hinges the whole gospel on it. He says that if Christ had not been raised, right, resurrected, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, right, for nothing. If in Christ we have hope in this life only and not in the resurrected life, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is clear as we define what resurrection is that it's kind of important and that it's worthy of our time and attention. So let's continue to flesh this out as we further define the resurrection. Let's look at the dimensions of resurrection. Let me see if I can explain what I mean by that, right? When we think of the word resurrection, we think of what Elizabeth mentioned earlier, right? Lazarus and bodily resurrection, which in and of itself is incredibly powerful. It's something that shames death. It's something that proves Jesus is king and not the brokenness of this world and ultimately brings incredible glory to God as a miraculous sign. Lazarus is a great example of that. A man who had been dead for days, Jesus approaches him, raises him from the dead. And of course, Jesus himself, after being crucified for our sake, left the tomb three days later and sits at the right hand of the Father right now. Obviously, great examples of resurrection. But there's another dimension of resurrection that I want to draw your attention to. And that's the idea of life regeneration, right? When someone is risen, someone is resurrected, it's not just bodily resurrection in Scripture. Look at the examples of Peter and Paul. Consider Peter. The night that Jesus is going to die, he promises Jesus that he would be willing to die in his place and go with him until the very end. Hours later, Peter's betraying Jesus, completely dissociating himself from him, not even willing to call himself a Galilean for fear that he could be loosely connected to Jesus. And yet, in the midst of that betrayal against Jesus, Jesus rises from the dead 
kindly approaches Peter, reaffirms him, reconciles himself to him, and commissions Peter to be a pillar of the current church, one of the founding fathers of what you and I get to experience today. That is compelling life regeneration. That's the kind of compelling transformational stuff that we would expect to see from a bodily resurrection. It's equally true when we're talking about life regeneration. Think about Paul too, right? Think about Paul. He was a devout believer. He wanted to serve God. He studied under one of the wisest men in the Jewish faith. And yet he ended up persecuting the body of Christ. And Christ told him that on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? He said. And yet look at Paul now. Paul in the book of Acts is no longer a murderer, right? He's a missionary. He expands the mission of God into regions that had not been expanded before. He, he is single-handedly responsible for getting the word of the gospel out into most of the known modern world at that point. And basically, you and I would probably not be believers if it weren't for the efforts of Christ through Paul. So think about that, right? Think about how incredible that is. That sort of life transformation is equally as compelling, I would suggest when we talk about the dimensions of resurrection. Did you have a question, Robin? Okay. So that's what I mean when I say the dimensions of resurrection, is that there's, yes, bodily resurrection, but when we're talking about resurrection going forward, we're also talking about life regeneration. Ezekiel talks about this too, in actually chapter 11, verse 9. Ezekiel says, speaking, God speaking through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I see him. So, heart of stone, right? Powerful. You can't be deader if you've got a heart of stone. It's just not possible to live. What beautiful metaphorical language to then remove that heart of stone and instead replace it with a heart of flesh. This is life regeneration, even being pictured in the Old Testament. Scott, what's your question? Uh, just life regeneration Yeah. Great question. Great question. So Scott asked, his question was, is this kind of life regeneration that we're talking about only true for people like Peter and Paul, who are sort of like the all-stars of Scripture, and not necessarily true for all believers? I would say, no, it is not select for believers. When I'm talking about resurrection this way, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit coming into somebody's life, making something broken new, and turning them into a child of God. That's what I mean when I say life regeneration. Does that help? Does that answer your question? Good, really good question. So let's step now um, into just a really quick quote from N.T. Wright, who I think really fleshes this out extremely well. Wright says that when we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, he's not just ushering in a new religious possibility or a new ethic, right, like new morality or even a new way of salvation. He's offering in new creation. When you become a child of God, the old passes, the new comes. You are totally regenerated as if you were dead and now you're alive. That is what it means to follow Christ. And so that's a good segue into kind of the third aspect of studying resurrection, and that's the demand for resurrection. All throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we see that human beings at the core, because of sin, are totally depraved. And in fact, when Scripture talks about our sinful state, it talks about us as being dead in our sins. Truly, truly dead. After all, if we need to be resurrected then we probably have to be dead first so that we can be resurrected. And that is a theme that is rife all throughout Scripture. And, and to really understand what we mean when we say you're dead in your sins, it truly means that the good things that you try and do, even at their core, 
are informed by our selfish tendencies and our habits unless we're regenerated by Christ. But I want to make sure we get that there's a need, there's a demand for this resurrection. Look how Pastor Tim Keller describes total depravity, our totally depraved state in his book, Prodigal God. Keller says that to truly become a Christian, we must learn to repent of the reasons we even ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too. We must learn how to repent for the sin under all our other sins and under all our perceived righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. It is only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord, lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness, that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed, right? Even the roots of the things that we try and do without Christ are ultimately evil. That's what it means to be dead in our sins. You know, the beautiful thing about resurrection is that dead people can't resurrect themselves. In order to be resurrected, it means that we believe that we are first dead and that somebody else who isn't dead and in fact has the capacity to change our status forever has the ability to come into our lives, transform it from the inside out and breathe new life into us. Resurrection demands that we believe we are dead and that we need someone to come and to save us. So we've gone through the definition, the dimensions, and the demand for resurrection. Let's talk about what that looks like now in real life, the display of resurrection. And there are a few different ways that resurrection gets displayed, I would venture to say, in the world. The first being kind of the universal display. And, and what I mean by that is like the cosmic level, right? Like we know from scripture that it's not just human beings who are suffering because of sin, but the whole world is broken as a result of our sin. And so when we think about why resurrection is getting so much attention in scripture and why Luke is drawing so much attention to resurrection, think about its implications for the broken world, right? Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 26. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Resurrection moments, when people are regenerated, when people are raised from the dead, those are moments that speak against the brokenness of this world. And they prove and they verify that death is not king, despite what we see, right? This week, we saw a man brutally killed, and the video passed out, a man named Jim Foley, for no good reason. And it was brutal and it was disgusting. And if you've seen the video, you know what I'm referring to. And it has troubled our entire nation. What troubles me is that when we think about the way that the world operates and even the middle of the brokenness that, that we have subscribed to, the response that we have as a people is to respond with violence, right? That's the way we operate. Jim Folly was killed. We get him back. That's the way a broken world functions. What, what we're seeing here is that death is not a tool. It is an enemy. And the last enemy that Jesus will conquer is death. And so when we see resurrection and the life of people, when we see bodily resurrection, th- those are prophetic moments that speak against the broken way that our world currently operates. There's also a political dimension to the way resurrection happens. In a lot of ways, the Jim Foley incident relates to this too. Look at how Jesus describes the way the world operates and then the way that we operate in the context of resurrection. 
Jesus in Luke 22, after dispute among his apostles about who wanted to be the greatest, who wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand, Jesus stops them on the road and says, the kings of the Gentiles, not the Christians, but those outside the faith, exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. You see, the way that the world operates, we tend to think that power is the way to get things done. We think violence is the way to get things done. We think authority is the way to get things done. But resurrection speaks against all of that because dead people don't raise themselves back to life. In fact, resurrection in a compelling way shows that the way of Jesus is far different, right? Think about what Jesus did. We see this in Colossians. It's actually 2.5. I apologize. Not 3.1. 2.15 perhaps. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, made a spectacle of all of those powers. All the the intuitions that we have to say, man, might makes right, survival of the fittest. Jesus, in the greatest victory that history has ever seen, conquered all of those powers by dying. Dying so that we could live. And when we get those, those desires to respond with violence for violence, when we have this, this, this intuition to, to pattern ourselves after the ways of the world, to be pragmatic. Remember the way of the cross. Remember Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and what? Is seated at the right hand of God. It is not the case, family, as resurrected people, that we have to submit ourselves to the ways of the world. And no, family, we can instead not subscribe to the weapon of the world, which is death, but to the tools of the Christian, which is resurrection, the resurrected life that speaks prophetically against the way that our political world operates. So that's universal and political. Yes, Robin. Yeah. Good question. So Robin is asking, um, when the passage in Luke and Jesus particularly says that we should make ourselves like the youngest, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should open our, be a little bit more open-minded um, and, and try and be more understanding like a kid would be when he's learning from his parents? Um, I think that's probably maybe a truth that we could maybe draw from the idea of being like a child, which I would say is probably more appropriate for other passages. I think what Jesus is teaching here is that when the world operates, we try and get ours. We try and move up the ladder. We try and use our influence to kind of push people out of the way to improve ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here is that, no, that's not the way Christians operate. Christians, in order to be influential, in order to be godly, in order to pattern themselves after Jesus, don't use power over people, but they actually come and serve under people. And that's the way of Christianity. Everybody else functions opposite, survival of the fittest. Christians don't operate that way. Christians are called to something different. That's good. Good question. So universal, political, and now transformational. And I'll be brief here, but when you think about the resurrection, it changes people's lives. Think about the 11 apostles, right? These were cowardly, fearful fishermen and a couple of tax collectors possibly, but not people of any great rapport. And certainly at their, their, their hour of need, when Jesus needed them most, they ran, right? 
But look at what the resurrection does to these men. Look how Scott McKnight describes them in his book, The Jesus Creed. McKnight says that the 11 remaining apostles, they had been caught up in Jesus' kingdom and mission. But the death of Jesus makes a disaster of their expectations. Then Jesus appears to them. He's resurrected. Their response, some still doubted. And so what is Jesus' response to that? What we call the Great Commission, to go make disciples in all the world. And they do it. And our church exists now because that motley crew of men were faithfully transformed by the resurrection of Jesus in their lives. Beyond death, doubt, and disaster, McKnight says, is the new life of resurrection. Beyond all pain, there is now hope. And if you can take something like those 11 men and all their flaws and all their failures and turn them into some of the bravest, most courageous, most fearless men, that is truly transformational. That is the power of God in resurrection. And so lastly, royal, right? All these different displays of how resurrection looks in the world. The last that I would venture to push is royal because ultimately resurrection is the greatest evidence that Jesus is king. You see, every other thing in our world that we swear our allegiance to or are tempted to, our money, our stuff, our houses, our families, at the very best, those things just smooth our path to death. They don't save us from death. They don't preserve us. They just kind of make it easier. But Jesus is different. Jesus' resurrection from the grave validates himself as the one true king. And if you don't believe me, look at how Peter phrases the resurrection in his message to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. He says in verse 29, I'm sorry, in verse 31, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promises of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying, you worship money? Great. Where's that going to get you? You worship your family? Great. Where's that going to get you? You worship your job? Great. Where's that going to get you? I worship Jesus. He died. He rose from the grave. He's in heaven. He's king. Your stuff's not. Questions? This is what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that no other thing in this world that we think can validate and strengthen and support us can do so like Christ. Christ is the one person who can truly claim the throne of this world. See, that's the funny thing about allegiance. When we talk about words like allegiance and kingdom, you can really only have one true allegiance because there's really only one true king. Right? If all of those different things, death, greed, destruction, whatever, if all those things had true claims to the throne, then maybe Jesus wouldn't be so radical when he talked about forsaking everything to follow him. But the difference is that Jesus is actually the only one who has the right to claim himself as king. And if that's truly the case, then anytime we swear allegiance to something else, even things that we think are good, like our careers and our families and our comfort and our safety and our security... We are living in open rebellion to the one true king. It's that serious, family. Resurrection is, in and of itself, the validation for Christ as our king. And so that's our our survey of resurrection. That's, That's what resurrection appears to be saying in scripture. So as we think about resurrection and as we think about how that fits into the context of Acts, think about some things we've seen so far in the Gospels and in Acts. 
I think it's fair to say that resurrection can be extremely dangerous for the person who's experienced it. Lazarus, after he was raised from the dead, was plotted against by the Jewish religious authorities to see him die again. Because his resurrection was so powerful that it was changing the religious landscape in Judea. And they wanted to see him gone. Peter, after he went from a wimp to a champ, was seen as a threat once again. And was viewed as extremely dangerous by the religious establishment. And was ultimately martyred on a cross, just like Jesus. Paul, when he was transformed from a murderer to a missionary... He was viewed as extremely dangerous and ultimately was martyred by the single most powerful political force the world had ever seen. I want to challenge you, family. If we believe in resurrection, as we've talked about for the last 30 minutes, then we need to be willing to recognize that to be a resurrected person is to be in a form of danger. And that's how persecution, which we were talking about before, and resurrection come together. Resurrection and persecution are closely tied themes, right? The reason I would venture to say that Luke is drawing our attention to the resurrection in this passage is because the church just came out of a difficult time of persecution and that the truth of resurrection is the truth that can speak against persecution. Let me see if I can flesh this out a little bit on the slides, right? Think about it. When you're a resurrected person, you are in a constant state of rebellion against every other allegiance in the world which is going to lead to persecution. And we've seen that in scripture. So persecution, what persecution is designed to do is the effort to use doubt and despair and even death to nullify the real effects that you see in your life in the resurrected life that you're experiencing. That's the whole goal of persecution is to, to, to fear you in to nullifying and giving up the resurrected life that God has given you by believing some other lie. But ultimately, resurrection defeats persecution because death cannot defeat somebody who's already been resurrected, right? We know if we've been raised from the dead, that death has no effect on us because of the merciful hand of God. Ultimately, the only thing that answers persecution like this is a strong, stable, steadfast belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his work in our life today. Caitlin. I think that's a good way to say it, yeah. I think, I think when you are a resurrected person and you're saying, cool. oh yeah, I'm sorry, thank you. So Caitlin, Caitlin asked, um, is resurrection leading to persecution because, um, say it one more time, I'm sorry. So Caitlin's saying, because our works mean nothing and the rest of the world would say your works matter, the world is offended by that. I think that's a good example, right? Ultimately, resurrected people live a different kind of life because people who haven't been resurrected are enslaved to something else like money or their career or their family or their stuff. Resurrected people are saying, none of that really matters, actually. My allegiance is to Jesus. And that's hostile because that means that all those other things that people are devoting their entire life to are valueless and have no meaning. And that is what leads to persecution. But ultimately, what we know from Scripture is that resurrection and a belief in it can transform us and equip us and empower us to be able to sustain ourselves in the midst of great persecution. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of the passage in Luke chapter 9, a passage that's pretty familiar to a lot of us. Um, This is Jesus after he's gathered a lot of followers, um, and he turns to all these followers who who are coming after him, and he says, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. Let him follow me. For whoever would save his life, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You know, when I've looked at this passage and, and, and this whole this language of, of carrying your cross and following Jesus, it's language that I appreciate because I, I love the idea of forsaking your life, forsaking everything, to be single-mindedly focused on the kingdom. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful story. But you know what else this passage is teaching in the context of the resurrection? Jesus isn't just inviting us to take up our cross and die and put our things to death and forsake everything. He's calling us in that death to experience new life and resurrection. Because you've got to die first in order to be resurrected. You've got to realize that you're dead in your sins before you can be resurrected. When Jesus is calling us to deny everything, to deny the allegiances of the world, to forsake everything and to follow him, he's not doing so out of spite. He's doing so because he's calling you into something greater, something more beautiful, something that has true meaning because it comes from the true king of the world, the resurrected life. So as, as we close, I want to leave you guys with three questions. Three questions that I think this passage asks us. Three questions I think scripture asks us. Um, and I think these questions are going to apply to different people in the room. Um, for those of you guys who still aren't sure yet, I want to ask you, who is the king? Who do you recognize to be king of the world? I've already rattled off quite a few other people that are other ideas or, or systems or, or stuff that people really view as their king. The powers of the world and its kingdom suggest that violence and authority and greed and money and stuff rule. Society says that we ought to lean in. We need to get ours and subvert others to gain our claim. It's survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. We need to seek our comfort, success, and achievement, even if it comes at the expense of others. Might makes right. These are, if we're honest with ourselves, the virtues of our world. These are the ways in which we make things happen because it seems to be natural, seems to be pragmatic, it seems to be the best way to do it. But what have we encountered in Jesus? What is being taught here through the resurrection? Jesus, our creator God, condemns these values. They are not equal claimers to the throne. He is the only one. And Jesus does things totally different than the world. He lowers the proud and gives grace to the humble. And he didn't just talk about this, he did it himself. He became a man, a child refugee, owned next to nothing, had few friends, and died one of the most stricken, lonely deaths someone could ever imagine. And he did it, and he was victorious, because that's the way that King Jesus operates in this world. And so I ask you, if he's real, if he did live that life, if he did die that death, if he did rise from the grave, as so many today believe then the kingdom of this world, the one that's so natural, the might that makes right mentality, at the end of the day, is a complete farce. You must decide now. There's no middle ground on this. Either your allegiance is to the true king, the one who's risen from the dead and conquered death, or something else. So that's my first question. Second question. For those of you who believe that Jesus is God or king, will you follow him? If you do believe that Jesus is God, Jesus is God and the king, then not only do all those powers of the world that other people swear their allegiance to need to repent, we need to repent. Our feeble attempts to usurp Jesus' throne are just as offensive. Just as death stands in stark contrast to the resurrection, we ourselves do if we do not submit. 
we stand in stark contrast to Jesus. Look at how Jesus describes coming into the kingdom of God in Matthew, um, Matthew 13 in the parable of the field. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What I want to ask you is that if you truly believe that Jesus is king, will you do the same? Will you give up everything that you have and not just call him king, but truly follow him? Will you give up everything you own and with great joy pursue Christ? Are you going to advance God's kingdom or are you going to stay opposed to it? Do you really want to stand in opposition to a king who's willing to die so that you could live? Deny yourself. I ask you, take up your cross and enter into the resurrected life and you just might find a peace that surpasses all understanding that you've had before. And then lastly, I want to ask for those of you who are believers in this room, those of you who have said, God is king, Jesus is the one true king, and I want to follow him. I want to ask you, will you truly lay your life down for the king? If you've been given the grace of God, and you've been given the opportunity to follow Jesus, will you do so now with abandon? Obedience at its core ultimately means to die to yourself. Jesus has laid claim to this world, and to you as our rightful king. He has empowered us to live the resurrected life, one that transforms murderers like Paul into missionaries, and perhaps even into martyrs. So I want to ask you, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to follow with abandon? And and if you're hesitant, I want to encourage you, family, this isn't a performance faith. It's a grace-based faith. And I think Nate Egger says this really well in his book, Default Christianity. You see, wholeheartedness does not equal perfection. We see this in the lives of Jesus' disciples who had given everything up to follow Jesus but still stumbled from time to time. The difference between an unbeliever and a believer or a traitor and a subject of a king is not the presence of sin. Rather, and key in here, it is a joyful willingness of the true believer when confronted with a previously unknown idol to humbly repent, eagerly throw off that distraction and fix his gaze on Jesus. So consider, my brothers and sisters in Christ, will you carry the cross of Christ? Will you too deny the ways of the world, deny sin, deny selfishness, deny your very self for the cause of Christ? Will you forgo all other distractions, even the most difficult? Will you rest in the arms of Christ, even when you're tired, even when you've made mistakes? This mission is too important, family, to be diluted by our fears, to be taken aback by persecution. Let's consider ourselves worthy to suffer for his name. And let us get our hope from Christ who raises the dead to life. I want to leave you guys with with this passage as we close. uh, From John 11, these are the words of Christ. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believe in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And I ask you that question, family. Wherever you are, do you believe that Jesus, the king of this world, has the power to resurrect anyone from the dead and to give you a hope to face terrible persecution? Let's close in prayer. Father God, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Make us faithful followers of the spirit of your resurrection. Grant that we might be renewed from the inside out, dying to ourselves so that you could live.
Holy Spirit, may our lives serve as signs of the transforming power of your love as your instruments for the renewal of society. Bring your life and love to all by guiding them into the kingdom of God. Where there is death, let us sow and reap resurrected life. This we ask of you, Lord Jesus, he who has risen from the dead and proven himself to be the king of the whole world. Amen. Family, as we continue, um, I just want to encourage you guys, whether you're new here or not, that we're going to be entering into a time of tithe and communion.